Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. You may remember that last month we hosted an event at the British Library along with one of the other projects funded by the UK and a changing Europe. That's the EU Families and Euro Children project. The aim of this event, which was called From Mobile Citizens to Migrants, was to relocate the discussion about the transformation of citizens' rights within broader discussions around migration law, policy and governance. And it was with this in mind that myself and my co-organiser, Dr Lawrence Lessard-Phillips from the University of Birmingham, brought together an expert panel to talk through these issues. The expert panel included Dr Nadine Elanani, a senior lecturer in law at Birkbeck, University of London, Alia Rahad, an associate policy analyst at Migration Policy Institute Europe, Omar Khan, the director of the Runnymede Trust, the UK's leading think tank on racial inequality, and Dr Nando Sigona, the research lead for the EU Families and Euro Children Project funded by the UK and a Changing Europe. Today's episode reflects on a second set of questions that we discussed on the day. And this was about the precedence, historical or contemporary, to the transformation of citizens' rights. The questions that I'd posed to the panellists were around what we can learn from historical instances where populations have had their rights previously conferred, removed or restricted. And how might that cause us to think differently about freedom of movement? Karen O'Reilly, our chair, started by asking me to reflect a little bit on these issues. One of the things that particularly struck me about the way that UK citizen populations living in the EU27 approached Brexit, as much as some of the things that I saw in the reporting of EU nationals and how Brexit would impact on them responding to this, was a sense of indignation around the removal of rights that suggested that they thought that they were in this unprecedented situation. Whereas what immediately struck me was that we did have historical precedents behind this that might be worth turning to at this point, much in the same um, vein as what Omar was saying in terms of thinking about what possibilities there might be for solidarity across some of those groups that have been considered as different. So I remember talking with with one of my researchers, um, with Catherine, who, who, as I said, isn't here today, about an event that she went to where somebody, an EU national, stood up and said, we're not migrants, uh, which struck me as being a really strange and potentially damaging claim to be making in an era where we know we live in a hostile environment, where, you know, the stigmatisation of populations who are perceived to be migrants is so rife. So that was really the kind of entry point for me into thinking about what this indignation about the removal of rights does in a situation where we're talking about populations who've had the privilege of being able to exercise rights, which I think is a really important distinction to make. So what's also become apparent moving forwards and into the broader public 
publicization of the Windrush deportation scandal is that some, there has been some very uncomfortable positioning, I think, of the case of EU migrants, the case of British nationals living in the EU 27, as the potential next Windrush generation, which I have to say that I have found really very uncomfortable. Just from the point of view of I think that, yes, we might be able to draw out some similarities and we might be able to say, okay, this is a case that demonstrates that some people through the process of changes in law and legislation might be made undocumented. They might fall between the gaps. But it's certainly, there are limits to that similarity that I want to draw very, very clear attention to here in very simply saying that I think we have to be very, very careful in drawing that similarity. Just from the point of, just from the point of view um, of thinking about, I'm pretty certain that there has not been a single instance of a British citizen who lives in the European Union ever having been deported from a European Union nation state. And if there is, I'm pretty certain that it's likely to be really, really tiny as a number or a population. I'm also um, very much of the opinion that given that we understand that British populations abroad are likely to be majority white, that they have not experienced the types of levels of structural and institutional racism that other populations who are considered migrant, either in the countries where they live, um, so across Europe there are issues around, around racialization of migrant populations as much as there are in Britain, or back in the UK. So this really isn't a level playing field. And I think that we have to attend, really, when thinking about those historical precedents, to the way in which those historical precedents play out in terms of who gets excluded, who gets picked out, who gets scrutinized when we have that type of transformation of rights. Thank you very much. Great start. Nando. Okay. This intervention partly jeopardized my plan, but I'll leave it maybe later. <laughs> I wrote an article in which I draw uh, a comparison between <laughs> the, the response that UN National have had at the anxiety that the Windrush generation, treatment with Jewish generation is generated among the EU nationals. And the article was about to what extent people were seeing a similarity and the anxiety rather than somehow obviously understanding the fact there is a clear difference in terms of the hierarchical and racial positioning of the people involved. That was pretty obvious in many ways. The kind of historical precedents that I think are interesting from our project, in a sense, to consider are slightly different. Uh, there are two cases in particular that I find very interesting. One is the Soviet Union and the other one is Yugoslavia, uh, in which, in a sense, the, the idea of producing an identity that was uh, uh, very much linked to a political project, so the idea of creating the Soviet men or women, the idea of producing the Yugoslav was basically linked to the promotion of intermarriage as a state policy. What is interesting there is, uh, and I, I look at uh, some of the policy promoted by the European Union, particularly Erasmus, as a way of promoting this mixing. And the moment in which the German and the French person of the Polish and the Spaniards meet up in another European country, in a sense, you are producing a new European identity, which is very hard to reconcile to the original one and in which the label European helps people to reconcile to where, whoever they are, because it's actually easier to deal with it rather than having to explain I'm half, half, and half, etc. And what was interesting in the case of Yugoslavia, for example, was the idea that at some point in the 1970s, the federal uh, state created an identity in the census, which was the Yugoslav identity, in which they were inviting people to subscribe to it. 
after the following census, they deleted it. And then what I'm interested in is, is the orphans of this project, the people that at one point decided they were Yugoslav, and then they were not allowed anymore to have that identity. And it's something that is quite interesting in terms of saying this tension between <laughs> macro politics and how people experience it, and the role of the families and mediation between uh, them. Okay. I will say something about Windrush, uh, how it's similar but also different. I think one of the things that's similar-ish is the the unwinding of empire of, of a certain kind of polity and then the production of a new one. And you then have to repatriate rights and responsibilities, etc., that used to be defined by empire now in a new way. So similarly, I suppose you could say uh, it's quite a fraught analogy, though, uh, for all the reasons Michaela said. First of all, that the empire was defined by a racial inequality of, of rights and, and lives. I mean, if you look at life expectancy, for example, in the different parts of the British polity, there were uh, very different, uh, it was 29 in British India and it was 70 in British Britain at the time of partition, for example, of, of Indian independence, Pakistani independence. So when the empire was unwound, we had to repatriate those inequalities of rights. And I think that's one of the things that Windrush has exposed is how much we've forgotten that repatriation of those inequalities of rights that attach to people in virtue of their racial background. Because we couldn't have them all coming here, of course, that would just not be possible. So uh, post in the 62, 68, and it's very clear if you read the parliamentary debates, which are all available online, <laughs> that, that they're not sort of obscure documents that you need to find where members of the House of Lords stand up and explicitly say this is because of race. Uh, there's a, sort of interventions of that sort. <laughs> And so obviously it's going to be different unwinding the European Union as a polity from unwinding the British Empire. But I think there are, I think, some concerns, I think, for a European national, which is, you know, will whatever sort of messy deal is cut after this be one that is coherent enough to hold? And will it be one that a future British state will continue to affirm? I think those are the two questions. I don't think it will be as uh Alarming, mainly for the reasons that Nando has already said, which is the inequality of power uh, of the European Union compared to, say, Jamaica. I'll just say one final thing and then I'll, I'll shut up about this. But we, we organized about uh, six weeks ago a meeting with 12 high commissioners, uh, and that was two days before they sent the, the letter to Theresa May. And I think if all 12 hadn't come together, uh, you know, you wouldn't really have had the kind of pressure. And if it wasn't also the case that the Commonwealth heads of government meeting was happening four days later, which is the time we we planned for the meeting, that the pressure would have been brought to bear. So the international pressure was, was really important for getting the issue uh, considered at all by this government. But I mean, you don't need 12 uh, small Caribbean islands if you're the European Union. I think you can you have more power. But I mean, I think that's not probably doesn't fill a lot of European citizens with much feeling of security if that's what they're relying on, not on the commitment to justice and to, you know, the, the law, the, the rules that we've signed up to in, in Britain. So that would be, I suppose, that that feeling that uh, your status is uncertain is now going to be maybe reinforced for a lot of EU nationals. Thank you, Nando. Oh, well, <laughs> some very good points. Alia. So I think I, I took maybe a, a different uh, angle on this question. I first wanted to just say that there's obviously no blueprints for Brexit uh, and the disruption that it may cause to free movement rights, particularly because the EU is without precedent in terms of 
allowing such a large uh, scale free movement between sovereign states. But there are two points, I guess, that I wanted to make. So the first was historically, restrictions to freedom of movement have encouraged increased migration and permanent settlement. Um, so we already talked about, I guess, post-colonial changes to citizenship and mobility laws, especially in the UK, France, Netherlands. But counterintuitively, these restrictions had the, the effect of increasing mobility so that populations could become more settled in order to guarantee their status or to beat the ban. One really telling example is in the case of Suriname, former Dutch colony, where 40% of the country's population decided to settle in the Netherlands within five years of their independence in order to keep their Dutch citizenship. Similarly, there were spikes in the Soviet, well, the, in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. They had, I think it was something like eight or nine years in order to move there to get Russian citizenship. And then we can see this again in uh, the guest worker program that we had in Europe um, when Spain, for example, introduced restrictions against Moroccans uh, who were engaging in seasonal migration. Suddenly we ended up with a much more settled Moroccan population and a large uh, family population as they uh, turned to that route to gain access. And we're already seeing spikes in citizenship applications from British nationals in the EU27. Between 2015 and 2016, citizenship acquisition rates more than quadrupled in Germany, tripled in Netherlands and doubled in Sweden. Uh, one German policymaker we interviewed joked with us that there wouldn't be any British citizens left in Germany by the time of Brexit because they all would have uh, gotten citizenship. Obviously, that's not true. The, the reason why there's such a big jump is because the baseline started out so low. Um, so the numbers aren't that high, but it's just a large increase. Anyways, on that, there was one more point I wanted to make that even though there's no blueprint for Brexit, it's still we can draw lessons from previous regularization campaigns. Um, we talk a lot about this in the report that we, that we published um, last month. I'll just do two points because I'm probably out of time. One is the need to balance fraud prevention with inclusiveness. And uh, so this is an important lesson because when you are requiring retrospective documentary evidence, as was the case with the Windrush generation, that leaves people prone to being left out or denied or incentivizing even fraud. And then the second point is just that systems should be user friendly. And I think uh, this is really an occasion where member states can trial some new online, <laughs> which will, will be different for a lot of them, offering things in simple terms, in native language, using multiple formats. And you know, people being should be allowed to apply in accessible and familiar settings, so at, at libraries, at hospitals, and schools, and the rest. And and these, you know, if we take these lessons on board of what's happened from previous campaigns, and I think we'll be able to reduce the number of of vulnerable people who fall through the cracks. Thank you very much. Nadine. Thanks. Um, okay, so for me, I suppose the starting point would never be in my research, the sort of for interrogating unequal distribution of rights among any sort of change that might impact the hyper-privileged, um, who will of course remain even after Brexit, relatively speaking, in an extremely hyper-privileged position. Um, we have to take a global and historical um, view of things. And so for me, Again, this is to acknowledge that the European Union and indeed the nation states um, that are part of the European Union are products of uh, colonial histories and racial dispossession. So any current transformation of rights needs to be um, understood in this context. Um, here I find it useful to draw on Sarah Ahmed, who's written that body just shaped by histories of colonialism, which makes the world white, a world that is inherited or which is already given before the point of an individual's arrival. While colonialism makes the world ready for certain kinds of bodies, it puts certain objects within their reach. It puts those objects, places, institutions out of reach of other bodies. 
Um, so of course, the safety of European shores is thus out of reach for irregular migrants who are always acutely and especially, as Sarah Keenan says, at risk of being repelled, unsettled or realigned. So for me, when thinking about precedents um, and transformations of rights, it's not in terms of historical instances, but rather looking at how immigration law has always functioned and functions now, even when we're not looking. So in terms of the Windrush, um, yes, they've caught the attention of the mainstream media and eventually saw, you know, the downfall of the former Home Secretary. But the hostile environment is continues working and has been working and has been also in the making for a very long time. And I think it's important not to um, hold the Windrush up as somehow exceptional in the treatment that they faced or as being particularly deserving as good um, migrants or at worst national treasures and, and others who face this sort of treatment as being somehow less desirable and that's all right, for example, um, foreign criminals, etc. I'll come back to that. But um, so as we know, the hostile environment has been brewing for a long time. In 1995, Tory Home Secretary called on the NHS to find ways of controlling access to free medical treatment and to improve procedures to enable providers of benefits and services to identify ineligible persons from abroad. There are media reports from the 90s of NHS hospitals refusing treatment to people without documentation, for example, Kurds in the 90s. And the important thing is to note that these policies, the hostile environment in its early stages, was being articulated at a time when there was an increase in asylum claims by people people who were formerly British colonial subjects but had been disenfranchised of their rights of entry to Britain uh, through the 60s and the 70s. So it's important to note that the post-war labour gaps actually after the war were actually filled by European labour. You know, a lot of the discourse around the Windrush has been that they were somehow invited here and with open arms, welcomed, etc. Actually, they came as a complete shock to policymakers um, at the time who only really tolerated the arrival of the Windrush because at that time Britain still had imperial ambitions and attachments that it wanted fostered. And that was why they initially even passed the 1948 British Nationality Act, which is why the Windrush um, generation could even leave legally enter Britain is because they wanted to maintain their right, their um, influence within Australia, South Africa, New Zealand and Canada, essentially the old white dominions. And it's crucial here to note that this freedom of movement kind of ushered in in, in 1948. This was freedom of movement for white Britons. And so actually, I think that often we, we sort of say, oh, you know, white Britons move abroad today. Well, this is emigration of white people, colonization by white settlers moving to Australia, moving to the US, moving to Canada. It doesn't get as much attention as it should. So I agree with you. So it might be a group of migrants that you're not as interested in, but actually they, there are a lot of them um, through time who, who are involved in um, ongoing situations of colonization and dispossession in places like Australia, where you have Aboriginal people continually dispossessed of their land, but also subject to disproportional violence and premature death as a result of um, racial ordering. I am going to stop. I've almost finished. So I think that this is why we need to remember these histories when we're looking at what is happening today. And just one small response to what Michaela said at the start about Britain's um, not being deported. I can give you several examples of um, British people who've been stripped of their citizenship and deported um, when being um, suspected of being involved in any kind of terror-related activity, which we know, of course, the terrorist is a racialized, uh, racially produced subject. And so um, one thing I think is important to know, and I'll come back to this in my final response to final question, is that Actually, even the category of British citizenship, not just European mm. citizenship, is nothing stable about it if you are not white. British citizenship as a 
construct is a two-tier system. If you are racialized as non-white, you could very easily find yourself being stripped of your citizenship and deported. Um, you could be stateless. As we know, changes to citizenship laws have, have meant um, British people are deported. They're just not white. Thank Thanks. you very much. Super. Thanks very much. I'm going to take all questions and comments at once this time and, and then what we'll ask the panel to respond to those that are relevant for them but just first I just want to some quick summary again so I think we've sort of raised the spectre here of privilege but also precarity and hierarchy of migrants we've thought about identity and and the difference between ascribed identity and self-identity the role of the power role and power of the state and the responsibility of the state uh, complexity of the history. Windrush is not exceptional. I really picked up on that. And, and the longevity of the hostile environment and instability of British citizenship for some groups. So thanks very much for some really great interventions. Over to you guys. Thank you. I'm Rachel Humphreys from the University of Birmingham. I'm really interested in the idea of the hostile environment, particularly in its relationship to Brexit, so maybe the way that it helped produce Brexit and then what the consequences will be for migrants after Brexit. Thank you. I'm, I'm Linda, Linda Lewis, and I'm also from Goldsmiths, but from a different department uh, from Nicola and from Media and Comms. I'm making a series of videos about the human impact of Brexit in the UK on people in the UK. And I've been talking to regretters. So these are the people that voted to leave but have changed their minds. And I've been talking to European citizens um, who've lived in the UK for a very long time. I just wanted to say I totally agree with the point that was made about Windrush is different. But I think, I think there are some things that, um, some undercurrents that are working in the same way because my experience of talking to uh, some of these European citizens is that what's happened over Windrush is that it's sort of further unnerved them about what might happen. And I think the uncertainty over their status is something that, you know, I don't think we've really looked into the psychological impact of, of Brexit yet very much. I've come across one or two people in uh, interviews that I've done who've talked about it. But um, just for example, I'm talking sort of from, from memory now, but I'm sure I remember reading something in the last couple of days about how there's a new thing that's emerged. And this is that, if, that somebody has changed their tax return, yeah. which you're perfectly entitled to do. I mean, I when, when I was self-employed, I did it. I went back and, you know, change something when something has become apparent. And that was used as a reason to basically tell somebody that they, you know, they've got to leave the country. And it's not surprising, obviously, that European citizens uh, might, you know, feel very, very unnerved by that. So, um, yeah, much. just a, a point about that. My name's Jean Smith. I'm at King's College London, and I'm a historian who works on immigration from Britain, um, especially after the Second World War. And it was really striking to me, although the data is difficult to get hold of in terms of numbers, how much emigration from Britain outnumbered immigration to Britain, particularly in the 60s and 70s. And I think it is really remarkable how unremarked this sort of continued phenomenon is. And even in the historical literature, it usually goes up to the Second World War when you see all that literature. And I mean, I'm increasingly thinking that it has to be to do with the fact that this idea that it is mostly white British. I'm talking about, for, for example, white Australia policy meant that, you know, there's even cases of um, British citizens of color that couldn't go on the 10 pound pump scheme and so on. These kind of programs last up until the 1980s of either preference or subsidy. 
I'd love to hear any more thoughts on why this is less of a sort of known phenomenon. I mean, it seems to me that it, it's unremarkable because it's been carrying on for so long. And there is also this sense that certain kinds of people have the right to move wherever they want. But I'd love to hear more ideas just as I'm kind of thinking through this particular issue, which I'm glad has come up on a couple of occasions. I'm Lisa, PhD student from the University of Kent. Um, this was made me think of what Nando was saying. Just to what extent is, do you feel there's been a generational shift regarding European identity and a narrative of deservedness in terms of citizenship and work, especially labour, especially within those younger people who grew up with access to widening European-wide education and labour programmes, like Erasmus, as you mentioned, whether that transcends national identity in favour of a European-wide one. I'm just trying to make uh, panel's views on the fact that Britain seems to be reluctant or resistant to ID cards and seems comfortable with setting impossible immigration targets, and yet at the same time seems to adopt a hostile environment and no exit checks as a way of trying to deal with the same issues. <laughs> Why is there such a, dis a dysfunctional perspective, both in terms of the British population and the British uh, political system. Thank you. What, Sorry, we have I one more. I to introduce myself. Sorry. Uh, Vivek Nanda, I'm both an immigrant and a citizen. I'm Claudia Del Piero. I run a website called Europe Street News, uh, which is about uh, citizens' rights and European citizenship. I would like to question a little bit this concept of the privilege given by the EU rights. My understanding is that freedom of movement gives the same rights to the people who move around Europe, who are from uh, EU countries. So in a way, it creates a situation of equality that wouldn't exist otherwise. And it applies to people who move. And the problem is that the people who don't move don't have then the same rights, but these are defined by, at the national level. What are your thoughts on this? Where is the privilege really? And where is the discrimination really? Thank you very much. Thank you. That's great. Thanks for all your questions and comments. It's been fantastic. Can I ask the panel just to um, respond to the things that, that are relevant for them? In well, not in turn, but um, whoever wants to volunteer first. Nicola. Yeah, I'm going to start with Claudia's question. It's a fallacy that freedom of movement was, is actually an equalising factor um, there have been numerous court cases, if we want to talk about the points of rights, about whether people were legally eligible to, uh, for freedom of movement, whether they've exercised those rights correctly. There's a very big difference between the legal structures that guide freedom of movement and the actual practice of people moving freely, which are two very, very different things. And I think that that's really important to bear in mind. And it's exactly the people who've been, who believe that they have been exercising freedom of movement, but who actually on paper, if you sat down and put them up against eligibility criteria, would not have been exercising freedom of movement as a legal uh, structure who will find themselves falling between the gaps with Brexit. And there's some excellent legal writing about this. And you can see it playing out through a whole series of legal test cases about where people have actually been found to not be legally exercising their rights and then they've contested those. So it's not quite the um, egalitarian thing that people always thought it was. So within that, there are a whole range of, you know, the people who are likely to be legally exercising their rights are likely to be people who are, 
who have particular levels of education um, and income and various things like that. We know, for example, that freedom of movement disproportionately discriminates against disabled populations, for example. So it's, that's where, where I'm going with that recognition that it is a certain a degree of privilege that's built into that, as well as the points that Nadine was, was pointing out about the, the kind of racial privileges that go along with that within a broader system where we're talking about processes of decolonisation and what those might look like. Thanks, Nicola. I think uh, Nadine wants <coughs> I may to come as back well. on that. I may, yeah, I may as well just follow on from that. I mean, I think there is absolutely no way that you can say that it isn't a privilege and that it doesn't empower certain people to the detriment of others and disempower others. If we're thinking globally, which I think we always must, there is no point in looking at just the European space or just the white European space or just the white middle-class European space or even just the white working-class European space and look there to decipher whether or not something is attributing privilege or not. If we think globally, we already know that when the Schengen Agreement was signed, when free movement was taking shape, but when the internal borders were removed, they came with flanking measures on the outside of the European borders. Fortress Europe is a term used to describe that. The kind of violence that happens in those places is because of this idea that people can move without security checks, without borders checks within, and therefore we need to have these kind of flanking measures. We always have to think about the effect of privilege. And I do think that Europe is privileged as a space, a place where people are entitled to safety, are entitled to security, and it doesn't matter what's happening in the rest of the world. It doesn't matter if people are disenfranchised or people um, experience um, extreme forms of violence, whether in trying to get to Europe or being trapped where they already are in situations of abject poverty, precisely because Europe is a protectionist space of freedom. And I think it's really important to recognize as well the points that Omar was raising about how actually people within Europe who are British citizens, they may not even They may never have applied for a passport. They may never have thought of themselves as worthy of travel or as entitled to movement. And they just feel grateful every day to be able to afford the gas and the electricity that they live on. So those people are not empowered through free movement because it's a formal right. It doesn't actually empower you to take up that right. It doesn't say, well, let's all start from an equal position so we can then claim our free movement rights. I think we always have to be looking both within communities and also outside when we're denying situations of privilege. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, Nando, did you want to come in next? Uh, I found, um, if you've ever seen The Guardian today, there's an article by Rob Ford about uh, how counterintuitively uh, me, people seem to not be worried anymore about migration after Brexit in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, which is quite an interesting piece because I would be interested to see why is the case. I mean, going back a little bit to the issues of uh, the significance of the Windrush case and uh, compared to the European Union, from my point of view, one of the reasons of Brexit, and it's going back to the take back control thing, is that uh, the British establishment feel very comfortable in f- of creating hierarchies of power with the migrants coming from places which are less powerful. They found much more uncomfortable the fact of having to share uh, the polity with other countries which may be on a similar level of influence and power, etc. So it says that that's a very significant difference in many ways that's, uh, uh, that operate there. So in a sense, I'm not surprised to see that now everyone seems to be okay about migration because it's a different kind of migration and it's uh, different. And there is also the fact that strangely enough, the front page about migration seems to be have disappeared from the tabloid after Brexit or the, des- the discourse has been detoxified in many ways. 
maybe it's something to do. About the anxiety, which is interesting. The other day, the story that we heard about this person that uh, had the rejection on the base of the uh, mistakes and all this. The problem is, maybe not, maybe yes. The, the thing about the anxiety is very, there's not nothing irrational in the way that this thing has been managed. I mean, all the anxiety of people are not based on a rational assessment because basically the goalposts have been moving on every day. And so you people follow the flows. I mean, it's a politics of emotions that auto response and everyone knows that this is part of the game. Just to finish about the net migration point, one thing I will say very interesting, in all the debate, you know, in Britain, a lot of the, the immigration policy is politics and policies based on the net migration criteria. But you always hear very little about the other side of the net migration. You never see about immigration. Immigration disappear. And it's quite interesting. It would be very interesting to understand why we don't know anything about immigration, immigration policy, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you very much. Yeah, the 19th century, the is a story of emigration from Britain, of course, as well. So you could argue that the story of Britain immigration is ma- is mainly emigration from the 18th century to the 1980s. Uh, so it's quite curious the way we've forgotten it because it was emigrating, of course, to settler colonies uh, mainly. I did want to say uh, two things. So first is the the sort of point around the hostile environment and Brexit and on. Uh, you know, the, the sort of incoherence. And I, I think fundamentally that the current narrative on immigration is deeply utopian. And I say this because the argument is that freedom of movement is utopian, but the kinds of policies and the kinds of claims that the government is telling the population that it can deliver are undeliverable. So we have a government freely affirming undeliverable, unimplementable policies and lying to the public about their implementation. So I think that, that that needs to be called out as a fundamentally utopian or crazily utopian uh, view and that it's actually quite hard to adopt controls without some level of discrimination. So I think that needs to be foregrounded. So that's the first point. The second point is on the inequality of rights and the privilege of Europeans. I mean, it's just a truth in terms of access to things like benefits compared to non-Europeans, right? Europeans have greater rights in Britain than non-Europeans do. The question for me is not whether that's true, but whether or not there's a way to move from talking about leveling down the rights of Europeans to talking about leveling up the rights. So the question for me is, I'm not very much in favor. I I might even be willing to accept a slight inequality of rights after Brexit, because I don't think leveling down rights is ever a good idea because you've set the precedent for leveling down rights. And I don't know that it will benefit black people to give Italian white people more, you know, uh, fewer rights. But what I would like to hear more of from the three million and from other Europeans is that not only do we think the Home Office is terrible and therefore we don't want to be subject to it, but nobody should be subject to this regime. And what we want to hear more is a sort of common view that we need to level up rights. And the second view is if you're in favor of freedom of movement, I think we need to know, is that post-Brexit, is that a first stepping stone to global freedom of movement? And if so, you should say so. But secondly, what's the pragmatic means of getting there politically, like changing public opinion over the next four or five decades? Because we know it's not going to happen anytime soon. Do you think that the things that have led to the acceptance of European free movement are in any way uh, stepping stones to global free movement? And I don't I've never heard that account, what that would look like. And the, the final point is that this this point around all four of my grandparents, all eight of my great grandparents, all 16 of my great great grandparents, all 32 of my great 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 grandparents were born British. But I have less rights to live here because I was born in the U.S. than a European does. This is the sort of thing that animated a lot of the Windrush people. They can go back to 1736, which would be their 256 great, 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 great grandparents were all born British. 
The only reason they're in the Caribbean in the first place is because Britain transported them as slaves from Africa. So I think there is a question of the rights of ex-colonies who have been British for literally 300 years and yet have, have fewer rights. And as I say, I'm not in favor of leveling down rights of Europeans, but I think we need to hear a little bit more about leveling up and how we build on the rights that Europeans have to spread that to everyone. But that needs to be, I think we need a public argument, how we're gonna win that debate because we're a long, long way. And I don't think it's a short-term uh, short game. Thank you very much. Can I, uh, yeah. I think just to maybe come back on that last point about the privileges that distinguish EU citizens from, from other groups, even citizens within that member state, uh, it, it's very important and it comes up especially in family migration, particularly in the context of the UK where you have a high income requirement in order to bring your third country national family members. But if you're British and you exercise free movement rights, then you have Surinder Singh uh, rights to bring those family members back, which you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So it's it's kind of a bizarre disconnect that suddenly once you exercise free movement rights, you're suddenly entitled to more rights than the average yeah. British person. <laughs> I also wanted to come back maybe on that hostile environment as the cause of Brexit. Definitely t ditto uh, Omar's point that it created an unrealistic expectation, which automatically will undermine faith and authority. Yes. So if you're promoting something that is unachievable, then people have <laughs> no faith in what you can achieve. There was another question on the psychological aspect of Brexit, and I think that's going to be really huge. And I also wanted to relate that back to asylum seekers in, in Europe or, and, and anywhere. Also people who are in an insecure status and suffer mentally because of it. And it's gaining traction, I think, within research because of epigenetics, which I didn't know about. Maybe you guys are more familiar uh, with biology than I am. But this idea that you can transmit intergenerationally trauma that occurs in your life. And one example is people who suffer uh, through famines, not just their children, but their children's children are born underweight. So it's small things like this and, and what aspect that has on um, you know, mental health. There was one more point I wanted to make, which was just on the UK being uncomfortable with ID cards, but being happy with the hostile environment. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance that happens in any kind of uh, administration, including migration administration. Some of the interviews that we did in France, they talked about things not being in their administrative spirit. Um, so I don't have an answer to that, but just to say that for whatever reasons, some departments are just more likely to do different things, whether it's uh, in their best interests or not. There are cultures that are built around certain ways of operating, I think. And I think it's much more powerful to be shambolic about regulation <laughs> than to be in control of regulation sometimes. You can control things without being seen to. So mm. That's just a thought. Mm. So thanks very much for all of that. Fantastic. Definite round of applause for these guys. Thank you for listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. If you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today and want to find out more, check out our website www.brexitbritsabroad.com or you can follow us on social media via Twitter at BrexPatsEU and on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And I'll speak to you again soon.